Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hello, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. We are going to be starting this time in 3 Nephi chapter 1. So we have finished uh, Helaman, now we're in 3 Nephi, and uh, this is the kind of the apex, the important part here. Not that the rest of it's not important, but this now we're going to be talking about uh, the Savior's visit to the Nephites. But we have a lot of things in preparation of that, so let me get into some things here. First of all, uh, before we get into the actual scriptures themselves, I just want to read a couple things here from... Uh, Millet and McConkie, they said the account of the Savior's visit is the climax, the apex of the entire Book of Mormon. All previous Book of Mormon writings had pointed forward to that marvelous event, and all things recorded thereafter remind the reader of that event as a symbol of the Lord's climactic second coming that will yet occur. Some who are not intimately familiar with the contents of the book of Third Nephi, upon hearing that it consists principally of an account of the Savior's ministry on the American continent, may wonder whether, and if so, how it is any different from the accounts contained in the four Gospels of the New Testament. Is Third Nephi nothing more than a fifth gospel, adding to new insights but only repetition? As we shall see, Third Nephi contains not only an account of the ministry of the resurrected Lord among a group of inhabitants of the New World, but also many additional testimonies of the reality of the resurrection, clarifications of major points of doctrine, and a unique and touching description of the true nature of the immortal Messiah. These contributions not only are supplemental to the four canonical Gospels, but also are essential to a true understanding of the total mission of Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Redeemer of the world. While it contains numerous important doctrinal insights, instructions, and clarifications, the unique contributions of Third Nephi fall into at least five major categories. One, it testifies of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and serves as a second witness of his divinity. Two, it defines his gospel, clarifies points of doctrine, and teaches the necessity of gospel ordinances. Three, it explains the purpose of the law of Moses and teaches Jesus' divine role in the law's fulfillment. Four, it contains important clarifications concerning the other sheep and doctrinal teachings concerning the gathering of Israel. And five, it provides us with a unique and touching view of the emotional attributes of a glorified God, the resurrected Christ. And Eldon Tanner said, I suppose that nowhere in the scriptures do we have a more beautiful or detailed record of God's dealings with man than in the account of this visit as recorded in 3 Nephi. The warnings and beautiful teachings, if accepted and lived, will do more than anything else to bring peace and happiness to the world and to the individual seeking such a way of life. Here we can find explanations for many unanswered questions in the Bible. Third Nephi gives us additional information in more detail than the four Gospels in the New Testament and preserves the doctrines, teachings, and compassion of the Lord. For this reason, there are many who refer to Third Nephi as the fifth Gospel. All right, let's go ahead and get started here in the chapter. Uh, noticing the heading here uh, mentions here, now again, this was written by Mormon. And Helaman, who was the son of Helaman, who was the son of Alma, who was the son of Alma, being a descendant of Nephi, who was the son of Lehi, who came out of Jerusalem in the first year of the reign of, the, of Zedekiah, king of Judah. And so that preliminary chapter heading there was written by Mormon, translated by Joseph Smith. 
Now it came to pass in the 90 and first year, so now we're talking 1 AD, according to the record here of the of the of the people of Lehi, had passed away, and it was 600 years from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem, and it was in the year that Laconius was the chief judge and the governor over the land. And Nephi, the son of Helaman, had departed out of the land of Zarahemla, giving charge unto his son Nephi, who was his eldest son, concerning the plates of brass and all the records which had been kept, and all those things which had been kept sacred from the departure of Lehi out of Jerusalem. It was June of 1829, the latter part of the month, and the eight witnesses saw them, I think the next day or, or the day after, or one or two days after. Joseph showed them the plates himself, but the angel showed us, the three witnesses, the plates as I suppose to fulfill the words of the book itself. Martin Harris was not with us at this time. He obtained a view of them afterwards the same day. Joseph, Oliver, and myself were together when I saw them. We only... We not only saw the plates of the Book of Mormon, but also the brass plates, the plates of the Book of Ether, the plates containing the records of the wickedness and secret combinations of the people of the world down to the time of their being engraved, and many other plates. The fact is, it was just as though Joseph Oliver and I were sitting just here on a log when we were overshadowed by a light. It was not that, not like the light of the sun, nor like that of a fire, but more glorious and beautiful. It extended away around us. I cannot tell how far, but in the midst of this light, upon about as far off as he sits, pointing to John Whitmer, sitting a few feet from him, there appeared, as it were, a table with many records or plates upon it, besides the plates of the Book of Mormon. Also, the sword of Laban, the directors, i.e. the ball which, led, which Lehi had, and the interpreters. I saw them just as plain as I see this bed, striking the bed beside him with his hand, and I heard the voice of the Lord as distinctly as I ever, ever heard anything in my life, declaring that the records of the plates of the Book of Mormon was, were translated by the gift and power of God. And that was uh, an interview of David Whitmer uh, by Orson Pratt and Joseph F. Smith. Verse 3, Then he departed out of the land, and whither he went, no man knoweth. Does this sound familiar at all? The language describing Nephi's departure is very similar to that of Alma's departure. Hence, we assume that the Lord chose to translate him, to receive him into a terrestrial state rather than tasting death. If so, then Nephi, like three others who will follow such a course in 34 years, was given power over death, power over the elements, power to come and go among the children of men as need arose, and power to continue his mortal work in bringing souls unto Christ either on this or some other planet or planets. And that was by Millet, uh, Millet McConkie. Uh, Joseph Smith said, Now the doctrine of translation is a power which belongs to this priesthood. There are many things which belong to the powers of the priesthood and the keys thereof that have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world. They are hid from the wise and prudent to be revealed in the last times. Many have supposed that the doctrine of translation was a doctrine whereby men were taken immediately into the presence of God and into an eternal fullness, but this is a mistaken idea. Their place of habitation is that of the terrestrial order and a place prepared for such characters he held in reserve to be ministering angels unto many planets and who as yet have not entered into so great a fullness as those who are resurrected from the dead. This distinction is made between the doctrine of the actual resurrection and translation. Translation obtains deliverance from the tortures and sufferings of the body, but their existence will prolong as to the labors and toils of the ministry before they can enter into so great a rest and glory. So that's all about uh, what, it, what it's like to be translated and, and the purpose of them being translated in the first place and, and where they go when they're translated. So kind of interesting. Continuing verse 3. 
And his son Nephi did keep the records in his stead, yea, the record of his people. So just so that we're not confused here, there's a Nephi who's the son of Helaman, and now we have a Nephi who's the son of Nephi. That's now the one that's going to be taking over the records. And it came to pass that in the commencement of the ninety and second year, behold, the prophecies of the prophets began to be fulfilled more fully, for there began to be greater signs and greater miracles wrought among the people. But there were some who began to say that the time was past for the words to be fulfilled, which were spoken by Samuel the Lamanite. Remember that miracles don't bring belief or faith, but belief and faith do bring miracles. And they began to rejoice over their brethren, saying, Behold, the time is past, and the words of Samuel are not fulfilled. Therefore your joy and your faith concerning this thing hath been vain. And it came to pass that they did make a great uproar throughout the land, and all the people who believed began to be very sorrowful, lest by any means those things which had been spoken might not pass might not come to pass but behold they did watch steadfastly for that day and that night and that day which should be as one day as if it were no night that they might know that their faith had not been vain are we looking steadfastly for the signs of the lord's second coming verse 9 now it came to pass that there was a day set apart by the unbelievers that all those who believed in those traditions should be put to death except the sign should come to pass which had been given by Samuel the prophet in order for unbelievers to have been able to set apart a, a day at, at, as the time of the Savior's birth they must have believed literally that Jesus would be born exactly 600 years after Lehi left Jerusalem it's possible therefore that Lehi and his family left Jerusalem around the time of the Passover celebration leaving during that time would, would have made his family's departure less noticed because there would have been thousands of other people traveling to and from the city at the same time. Don't, we don't know for sure when that was, but uh, we're just wondering here if that maybe that was the case. Verse 10, Now it came to pass that when Nephi, the son of Nephi, saw this wickedness of his people, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful. And it came to pass that he went out and bowed himself down upon the earth and cried mightily to his God in behalf of his people, yea, those who were about to be destroyed because of their faith in the tradition of their fathers. And it came to pass that he cried mightily unto the Lord all that day, and behold, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, Now these verses cause us to reflect upon what is yet an unanswered, unrevealed matter. We don't know, and it's not been revealed, when uh, the, an individual spirit enters the body. This is the day before Jesus is to be born to Mary in Bethlehem of Judea. We would assume that by this, that the spirit of Jesus is within the, that infant body which is housed within the womb of Mary. How then does the voice of Jesus come to Nephi? Does the spirit enter the body at the time of conception, at the time of quickening, when the mother first feels life of signs of life within her, or at the time of physical birth? Can it possibly come and go before the time of birth? We do not know. Such has not been made known to us in the latter days. We do know, however, that the words of God are often spoken through his servants by divine investiture of authority. To Adam, the Holy Ghost spoke for and in behalf of the only begotten Son. Such may have been the case here. The Spirit may have been commissioned by the Father to speak to Nephi in the first person of Christ, as though Jesus himself were speaking. Another possibility is that an angel, acting by that same investiture of authority, spoke to Nephi the words of Christ. In any event, whether the Lord's voice whether the Lord's words are spoken by himself or by his authorized servants, it is the same. Uh, most likely, though, Jesus' spirit is, in, is within his body, which is in Mary, and this is probably an angel or the spirit that was, uh, that was speaking to Nephi. Verse 13. Lift up your head and be of good cheer, for behold, the time is at hand, and on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world. 
The Book of Mormon account of Christ speaking to Nephi, the grandson of Helaman, and saying on the morrow, come I into the world, is not intended to infer that the spirit does not enter the body until the moment of the actual birth. Rather, this revelation to the Nephites was itself being conveyed in a miraculous and unusual way. Quite probably, the one uttering the words was speaking in the first person as though he were Christ in accordance with the law, enabling others to act and speak for deity on the principle of divine investiture of authority. Now it's by Bruce R. McConkie. The previous quote that I read before was uh, Millet McConkie. Verse 14, Behold, I come in, unto my own to fulfill all things, Oops, I didn't finish verse 13. To show unto the world that I will fulfill all that which I have caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. Behold, I come unto my own to fulfill all things which I have made known unto the children of men from the foundation of the world. Jesus was and is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The plan of salvation, which is the gospel of God the Father, was taught and understood in our first estate. There it was decreed that this plan would entail a creation, a fall, and an atonement. And there it was that Jehovah, the firstborn spirit of the Father, was chosen and foreordained to be the Redeemer and the Savior of all mankind. Joseph Smith spoke of the nature of such premortal agreements. Everlasting covenant was made between three personages before the organization of this earth and relates to their dispensation of things to men on the earth. These, these personages, according to Abraham's record, are called God the first, the creator, God the second, the redeemer, and God the third, the witness or testator. That was by Joseph Smith. This is a most difficult passage. It sounds as though the Lord is stating that he will come into the world to fulfill two wills. The will of Jehovah, the premortal God of the ancients, perhaps referred here to here as me, and the will of the mortal Messiah, the person of flesh. Of course we know that they, Jehovah, and Jesus are one and the same being. At the same time, this statement dramatizes the separate and severable roles that would be played by the Master, that the Holy One of Israel, premortal, and that of Jesus of Nazareth, the mortal. And that was by Millet McConkie. Continuing verse 14, And to do the will both of the Father and of the Son, of the Father because of me, and of the Son because of my flesh. And behold, the time is at hand, and this night shall the sign be given. And it came to pass that the words which came unto Nephi were fulfilled according as they had been spoken. For behold, at the going down of the sun, there was no darkness, and the people began to be astonished, because there was no darkness when the night came. And there were many who had not believed the words of the prophets, who fell to the earth and became as if they were dead. For they knew that the great plan of destruction which they had laid for those who believed in the words of the prophets had been frustrated, for the sign which had been given was already at hand. And they began to know that the Son of God must shortly appear, yea, in fine, all the people upon the face of the whole earth, from the west to the east, both in the land north and in the land south, were so exceedingly astonished that they fell to the earth. For they knew that the prophets had testified of these things for many years, and that the sign which had been given was already at hand, and they began to fear because of their iniquity and their unbelief. And it came to pass that there was no darkness in all that night, but it was as, night, it was as light as though it was midday. And it came to pass that the sun did rise in the morning again, according to its proper order, and they knew that it was the day that the Lord should be born, because of the sign which had been given. And it had come to pass, yea, all things, every whit, according to the words of the prophets. And it came to pass also that a new star did appear, according to the word. Uh, Zelder Maxwell once said that as God has planned all of these things, and planets in their orbits and, and uh, supernovas or stars to explode so that they would be, they would occur exactly on the day that Jesus was born, uh, thinking about how far away those are, that they have to be exploded at a certain time so that the light could travel to our planet so that we could see it. 
um, all of these are orchestrated by a divine divine God and and uh, who's who orchestrates on and organizes all of the all of these events for us it's not uh, difficult to understand then how he can organize our own lives too if we'll just let him and, and give in to what he wants us to do by his will According to Hugh Nibley, this event may have been caused by a supernova, which would explain the light that continued after the going down of the sun and the new star arising, but which later disappears. Verse 22, And it came to pass that from this time forth there began to be lyings sent forth among the people by Satan to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders. Like I said before, signs don't convert, which they had seen. But notwithstanding these lyings and deceivings, the more part of the people did believe and were converted unto the Lord. Though the conversion may have been genuine at the time, it did not last long. And that was by Terence Zink, who uh, we'll find out later that they, these folks don't stay converted very long. Verse 23, And it came to pass that Nephi, Nephi is the prophet with authority to baptize for the remission of sins. When the Savior comes, he will ordain Nephi to baptize the people as members of the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, Nephi went forth among the people and also many others baptizing unto repentance in the which there was a great remission of sins. And thus the people began again to have peace in the land. And there were no contentions, save it were a few that began to preach, endeavoring to prove by the scriptures that it was no more expedient to observe the law of Moses. Now in this thing they did err, having not understood the scriptures. Whenever you get red in the face, whenever you raise your voice, whenever you get hot under the collar or angry, rebellious or negative in spirit, then know that the spirit of God is leaving you and the spirit of Satan is beginning to take over. At times we may feel justified in arguing or fighting for truth by contentious words and actions. Do not be deceived. Satan would rather have you contend for evil if he could, but, if, but he rejoices when we contend with one another, even when we think we are doing it in the cause of righteousness. He knows and recognizes the self-destructive nature of contention under any guise. And that was by Theodore M. Burton. Verse 25, But it came to pass that they soon became converted and were convinced of the error which they were in, for it was made known unto them that the law was not yet fulfilled and that it must be fulfilled in every wit. Yea, the word came unto them that it must be fulfilled. Yea, that one jot or tittle should not pass away till all shall be fulfilled. The law of Moses will not be completely fulfilled until the death of Christ. Therefore, in this same year, they were they brought to a knowledge of their error and did confess their faults. And thus the ninety and second year did pass away, bringing glad tidings unto the people because of the signs which did come to pass according to the words of the prophecy of all the holy prophets. Plus, they all didn't get killed because, uh, because the sign did appear. 27, and it came to pass that the ninety and third year did pass did also pass away in peace, save it were for the Gadianton robbers who dwelt upon the mountains, who did infest the land. Hugh Nibley said, but a few, but a new threat arose. The criminal element took to the hills, and there established retreats where they built up strength from dissenters joining them until they were able to reestablish the Gadianton organization. Terrorism was the name of the game. From their secure places, they would strike and withdraw, making a special effort to kidnap, especially women and children, to assure the permanence of their society. At the same time, Zoramite recruiters brought a host of young Nephites into the organization by the prospect of such things as romantic adventure, gaudy makeup, danger, loot, and license to kill. Soldiers of fortune also flocked to the camps. Continuing verse 27, for so strong were their holds and their secret places that the people could not overpower them. Therefore, they did commit many murders and did do much slaughter among the people. And it came to pass that in the ninety and fourth year, they began to increase to in a great degree because there were many dissenters of the Nephites who did flee unto them, which did cause much sorrow unto those Nephites who did, did remain in the land. 
And there was also a cause of much sorrow among the Lamanites, for behold, they had many children who did grow up and began to wax strong in years that they became for themselves and were led away by some who were who were Zoramites, by their lyings and their flattering words to join those Gadian robbers. And thus were the Lamanites afflicted also and began to decrease as to their faith and righteousness because of the wickedness of the rising generation. Uh, regarding regarding this uh, rising generation, Elder Maxwell said, while we do not think of it this way very often, the rising generation has some genuine responsibilities to the older generation still living. We are not immune to influence from you. We are not we not only regard you as the seed bearers of a celestial culture to come, but our own journey can be hastened by your pressing forward. About AD 3, an emerging generation of Lamanite youth became for themselves, discounting the influence of their righteous parents and many young adults were led away. Then this telling observation about how we always need each other was given. The Lamanites began to decrease as to their faith in righteousness because of the wickedness of the rising generation. Lowering standards in the rising generations can create an, an undertow that affects all ages. We have seen in just the past decade various youth movements wash over shaky adults who gave way under pressure. Some adults, strangely enough, replace their old values of all things with young worship. The last thing youth needs is to be envied or worshipped. Continuing on a quote here, the, chrono the chronological material listed on the bottom of each page in the Book of Mormon did not appear in the first edition. Uh, notice that the, at the heading of uh, third Nephi chapter 1, it gives you kind of a date when this is all going on. These chronological notes were first added in the edition of, in 1920 at the recommendation of a committee headed by Elder James E. Talmadge. The abbreviation BC is used to designate the number of years before the time of Christ. The abbreviation AD from the Latin Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord, is used to indicate the number of years since the birth of Christ. Note that this calendar system does not go through a zero number, thus the year before the birth of Christ is 1 BC and the year in which the Savior is born is AD 1. According to the calendar systems previously used by the Nephites, the year AD 1 occurs in the 92nd year of the reign of the judges. The record says the 90 and first year had passed away and in the 600th year from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. That was by Daniel Ludlow. So uh, that gives us an indication of some of the timing here, and and uh, but those that were true and faithful that uh, would not give in to the terrorists, so to speak, uh, were vindicated when the sign was given. And uh, we are also to look steadfastly for the signs of Jesus' second coming. And I pray that we might do that and say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Catch you next time. See ya. Bye.